Scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are a consuming fire, and in some ways that's difficult news for us because it means that you're holy and you're not like us, and we're not to treat you lightly, and when we do, there is a price to be paid. But the news that you are a consuming fire is also great news for us because you are gracious and you are merciful and you are kind and you use your fire to burn away from us all the things in our lives that are not pleasing to you. And so I pray that you would draw us now near to the fire of God. And I pray that you would heal us. I pray that you would cleanse us. I pray that you would focus us. I pray that you would give us hearts to seek you and to savor you and to sing to you, to praise you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to treat you with the kind of reverence and awe that you deserve and the kind of reverence and awe that that gives rise to great joy in our hearts. So, Lord, I surrender myself to you. We surrender this time to you, and we pray that you'd come now and use your word to build up your people and glorify your name, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter to the Hebrews was originally a sermon that was preached by a real man in a real place to a real church. We don't know who that man was exactly. We don't know what church he preached at. We don't know where the church was located. But we do know that this message was so powerful that it was copied and distributed all over the known world at that time so that it came to have great effect in the life of the church. This letter impacted people's lives. It shaped churches. It shaped groups of churches. And it came to shape Christian history in some very important ways. This sermon is notoriously difficult to outline, but I would suggest that it comes in four major movements, and I want to summarize those for you this morning because we're coming to the end now of the third major movement of the letter. So the first movement begins in chapter 1, 
and immediately it stuns us with a vision of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what he is even doing now in heaven and on earth. The first movement goes on to show us that Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Aaron, the great high priest. He's greater than the priesthood that existed under his leadership. Jesus is greater than King David. In fact, Jesus Christ is greater than all. So by the time this movement comes to a crescendo, we are left stunned and we're left to see the fact that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the scripture, that he has become the great king and the great priest of heaven and of earth who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. He is the promised one who was prophesied in Genesis and Psalm 110 and elsewhere. So you might want to call the first movement of the letter to the Hebrews the glory of Christ because it's designed to exalt the glory of who Jesus Christ is. It goes from chapter 1 to chapter 6. And as I said, when it comes to an end, we're left with this idea, with this truth, with this fact that Jesus Christ has become the great king priest and he will rule and reign forever and ever. The second movement begins in chapter chapter 7. And it continues through the end of chapter 10, and it teaches us about what Jesus has accomplished. So the first movement is about who Jesus is. It's about his glory. The second movement is about what Jesus has accomplished. It's about what he did on the cross. It's about how his shed blood relates to the Old Testament and to the whole sacrificial system and to the whole priestly system. It's about how the, the, the sacrifice of Christ has won for us a hope that is so deep and high and broad and wide that it can never be shaken or exchanged or corrupted or taken away. Jesus Christ made the all-sufficient sacrifice of himself on the cross, and by shedding his infinitely valuable blood, he made a way for all who believe in him to be eternally reconciled to God. And beloved, the great news is that because of what Jesus did, and because of who he is, once he has you in his grip, you can never be loosed from his grip. This is the powerful news, the good news of the second movement of the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus Christ sent as an overflow of the love of the heart of God the Father for his people, is so faithful that he not only kept his side of the covenant, but he kept our side of the covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author quotes uh, uh, the, the language of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And as you work your way through chapters 8, 9, and 10, you come to see that Christ not only fulfilled his side of the covenant, but he took on skin and fulfilled our side as well. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He obeyed for us because we will never obey him perfectly over time. He's just that faithful. So when you come to believe in him, when you come to be in Christ, his all-sufficient sacrifice covers his side of the covenant and it covers our side of the covenant so that we are always and eternally secure in him. So the first movement, as I said, is about who Jesus is and the second movement is about what Jesus did for us. The third movement then presses into some of the implications of these things for our lives. This movement begins in chapter 11 and it goes through the end of chapter 12. So you need to see chapters 11 through 12 as one string of thought. It is one thought. And the point of this section of Hebrews is to teach us that God is faithful and he can be trusted to the core. Eventually, 
Every person and everything in this world will disappoint us, but God will never disappoint us. We may feel disappointment at times. We may feel perplexed. We may feel confused. We may not always understand the will and ways of God. God will not always do things in our time and in our way. God will not always do things the way we've asked him to do them, but beloved, God is faithful. God is not faithful to our purposes or to our promises, but God is faithful to his own purposes and his own promises, and the Lord will surely do everything that he said he's going to do. This is what it means to say that God is faithful. This is what it means to say that God can be trusted, and this is what I mean when I say that God will never disappoint us. You may feel disappointment and disillusionment at God, but beloved, those are just feelings. In truth, God will never disappoint you because God will always keep his word. He can be trusted. And so chapter 11 gives us a number of examples of people who trusted God through some very difficult things in their lives. And at the end of their lives, they found out that God is faithful. And so then in chapter 12, the author turns his attention toward us and says, listen, you are completely surrounded by an enormous cloud of witnesses. These are people who have trusted in the promises of God and found out about the faithfulness of God. And now they are surrounding you and encouraging you to run with vigor the same race that they have already completed running. Now they are telling us that we should run the race set before us with passion and endurance. We should live by faith in the faithfulness of God. We should fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ who is glorious beyond imagination and faithful beyond comprehension. We should trust that Jesus is going to finish what he started in our lives. He did that for all these people. He's going to do that for us. In fact, this Jesus founded the faith that we have in him. I hope you hear this word from the Lord, the warm feelings that you have toward God, the trust that you have toward him in your heart was implanted in your heart by Jesus Christ. He gave it to you as a gift. And he's going to perfect your faith all the way until the day when you trust him without any admixture of fear or doubt or rebellion or anything else in your heart. He is faithful and he will do it, beloved. And so it is that the author urges us in chapter 12, verse 3, that we ought to look at Jesus and think carefully about Jesus who suffered so many things for us so that we will not grow weary and faint-hearted and give up. Now, as God's beloved children who have been called to run a race, we need to learn to expect that God is going to do something in particular. Namely, from chapter 12, verse 4 on, we need to see that God is going to discipline us. This is an expectation management issue. You just need to know that good parents parent their children. And since God is your parent, he's going to parent you. He's going to discipline you. And and those of you who were here a few weeks ago will remember that we learned that that word discipline actually means parent. God is going to positively guide you along in the way that you should go. And when you get out of the way, God as a good parent will discipline you so that you get back in the way. This is just part and parcel of life in Christ, and it's a good thing. It's a very good thing because it means that we're part of God's family. In fact, the Lord said that if you don't receive his discipline, you are an illegitimate child and not a son or a daughter. So listen, the discipline of God is not fun, is it? 
Times of discipline are not enjoyable particularly, and the Bible itself says that. At the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it's going to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness for everyone who believes. And so, since he loves us, since he wants us to run a race by grace, to run fast and far with Jesus Christ, the Lord promises us as a father to discipline us. Indeed, God is our father and he is good, so what else could he do? So then in verses 12 and 17, if you'll just look there real quickly, you'll see that the Lord issues three specific directives which are essentially the discipline of the Lord in our lives. And it tells us to strengthen our hands and to strengthen our knees and to fix our eyes on Christ. It tells us to strive for peace and holiness. It tells us to go after him with everything that's in us and to avoid sexual immorality and unholiness and unbelief and everything that distracts from looking at Christ eyeball to eyeball and running this race with us. And now in verses 18 through 29, the author tells us something about why this is. So we've come now to the end of, the, of movement three in the letter of Hebrews. And as we'll see in a few minutes, this ending reiterates and reinforces everything that the author has been saying from the beginning. So let me just summarize again. Movement one is chapters one to six, and it's about the glory of who Jesus Christ is. Movement two is chapters seven through ten, and it's about the glory of what Jesus Christ has done. And now movement three is chapters 11 through 12, and it's looking to us, holding its arms out to us and saying, come now and follow this Jesus by faith. None of this stuff is just talk. It's not just for church. It's not just theology. This is really who he is. This is really who he's done. You can really trust him. So cling to him. Give your heart to him. Give your mind to him. Give your life to him. Run this race with him all the way until the end, and you will find out that he is faithful to you. He's not just faithful in a general way, but he is faithful to you. So the main point, of Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, I think, is to say that the truths that have been taught in this letter are very serious and they are to be taken seriously. The being of Jesus, the works of Jesus are beautiful and glorious and life-giving and awe-inspiring and all of that, but beloved, they are not to be taken lightly. Jesus Christ is not to be played with. In fact, the joy that we experience in him has everything to do with the passion with which we seek him. And so in the hope that we will live focused lives and passionate lives, the author says this in verses 18 through 21. Please look there with me. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So if you don't recognize the story, these words are about what happened at Mount Sinai. These words are about the day when God revealed something of his glory in the sight of his people and spoke the Ten Commandments in the audible hearing of his people. It wasn't just Moses. It was the entire people of Israel, uh, a couple million strong, who heard the voice of God thunder from that mountain. This manifestation of the glory and holiness and power of God was characterized by a thick cloud that descended upon the top of the mountain. And there were strong winds that whistled along and ravaged the top of the mountain. 
There was a fire that blazed out of the cloud and literally torched the top of the mountain. And then there was the sound of a trumpet that shook the earth, and there was a sound of a voice that actually shook the hearts of the people that heard and put the fear of God deep into them. These people were told in no uncertain terms that they were not to come near even to the base of this mountain lest they die. In fact, they were told that your animals can't even escape and come near the mountain because if the animal comes close, the animal will die. Such is the holiness of God. But when the people saw these sights and heard these awful and glorious sounds and felt the soul-gripping vibrations of the presence of the Lord coming near to them, they begged in the fear of God that God would not speak to them any longer, but that he would only speak to Moses. It was fear that was motivating them. They had a, a visible, physical experience with the glory of God, and beloved, they trembled. Sometimes in our culture, you'll hear stories of people who claim that they saw God and so often with these stories, they'll, they'll talk about warm feelings that they had and uh, senses of peace and such like that. Perhaps if a person knows Christ, that's true. But in the Bible, every time we see a person actually encountering God, even when they believe in God, the reaction is that they tremble deeply, sometimes violently. Sometimes they fall to the ground and feel as though they have died. It's not that God is mean. It's that God is mighty. It's not that God is hateful, it's that God is holy. And when he comes near, when he manifests his presence, you cannot help but tremble in his presence. If you have never trembled in the presence of God, you have to ask the Lord, do I actually know you? A heart that knows God will in some measure and at some point in life tremble before the Lord their God. In fact, even the great Moses, the man of God who had such intimacy with the Lord and spoke to the Lord face to face and heart to heart, and soul to soul, even Moses trembled with fear. He knew that God was good, but he knew that God was not to be played with. Beloved, God is a very, very good God, but he's also a powerful God, and he's not to be taken lightly. The people of Israel understood that truth that day, although they didn't remember it for very long. But the author's point to us now is to say this. That experience on Mount Sinai that day as powerful as it was, as soul-gripping as it was, was actually nothing compared to what we have come to in the Lord Jesus Christ. That mountain was only a shadow of what was to come. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what was to come. That mountain was only filled with sounds and sights and feelings that were metaphors for what God was going to do. Jesus Christ is the reality of what God was going to do. So look with me at verses 22 through 24. We'll see the author make this real explicit. But you, that is to say, you who have believed in Jesus Christ and who are clinging to him by faith, you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We who have believed in Christ, beloved, come not to Mount Sinai where Moses was, But we come to Mount Zion where Jesus Christ is even this moment. We have come not to the metaphorical city of Jerusalem that's located on the earth, but we have come to the real thing. 
We have come to the city of the living God, to the new Jerusalem that is in heaven. Now this city has not come into its fullness, but it is real, and it is now nonetheless. It is neither manifest through nor subject to the kingdoms of this world. This morning as I was coming to church, I was listening to, listening to a report about some things that are happening in the United Nations, and it just made me think all the more that the kingdom of God is not manifest through or subject to any of these nations or all of these nations. This kingdom is not of this world. This kingdom has yet to come into its fullness, beloved, but it is now, and it is, a, it is characterized by a singular city that is the kingdom of God. It will never be conquered. It will never, ever fade away. And in that city, there is the fear of God indeed. Of course, how else could it be? But it is the kind of fear that evokes tremendous expressions of joy. So you'll see there in the author's words that in that city there are innumerable angels who are seeing and savoring the glory of God. They are singing and shouting the praises of God. They are meditating on and magnifying the works of God. They are serving and escorting the blood-bought people of God into his presence where there are pleasures forevermore. The city of God is characterized by a festal gathering, or to put it in our terms, it's characterized by a great, big, huge, holy party that's going on and will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. It will never come to an end. And at that party are present the assembly of the firstborn. Now that phrase might confuse you a little bit, but that's just a way of saying everybody who believes in Jesus, everybody who trusts in Jesus. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called the firstborn of God. And so now, when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is also called the firstborn of God. What that means is we have a certain position in the family of God, and we have a certain affection that comes from the heart of God toward us. It's not that we're literally a firstborn child of God, it's that we're in the position of a firstborn in a family. Jesus Christ is the one and only begotten Son of God, and now that we believe in him, we are united with him, and we experience a privileged place in Christ. And that's what it means to say that the firstborn of God are there. In this city are gathered angels. In this city are gathered people from every tribe and tongue and nation who have believed in God through Christ and who have a privileged place in his heart and in his presence. In that city, there are standing there with us, There is standing there with us. God who is the judge of all things and God who will judge all peoples with perfect equity and standing there is Jesus Christ himself who is the mediator of a new covenant by his blood and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now what that means is this, I think. Abel was the first righteous man to die on this earth, right? Abel and Cain were the son and the sons of Adam and Eve, and as they were going about their lives in one particular day, Cain killed Abel for no good reason. So Abel really is the first martyr in this world. He's the first prophet in this world who was killed for no good reason. But his blood is nothing as compared to the blood of Christ, and the city of God is absolutely covered by the blood of Jesus, which is infinite in mercy, infinite in power, and infinite in time, and will therefore never be cast off of this city. This city is characterized by the power, the mercy, the grace of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so standing there with us, beloved, is this just enormous cloud of witnesses who are testifying to the, the faithfulness of God and who are bidding us into the worship of God, who are bidding us into the festal gathering of God. Now I know that it's hard for us to believe that all of this is real for us because the bottom line is we don't actually live in this city. I live in Otsego. Some of you live in Elk River. Others of you live in Zimmerman or Ramsey or St. Michael or Albertville or wherever it is that you live. And none of those places looks like this, right? None of those places feels like this. Otsego is not a big, huge festal gathering to the glory of God. I can tell you that for sure. So there are times when this doesn't feel real, but beloved, this is where faith comes into the equation. This is where trusting in the claims of God comes into the equation. This is where believing the promises of God comes into the equation. Here on this earth, we have no lasting city. Here on this earth, everything will fade away, and ultimately, everything will be destroyed, including every kingdom. But in Christ, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a king that cannot be overtaken. In Christ, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken and we have a king who will never be overtaken. We've received a city that shines bright with the glory of God and a high priest whose heart glows brightly with the love of God for his people. This city belongs to us by grace through faith. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, I'm here to proclaim to you today that this city is your home. The city being talked about here is where your real citizenship is at. You might be an American citizen, but beloved, before Christ, that doesn't mean anything. Before Christ, your citizenship is in the new Jerusalem and your king is Jesus And the kingdom to which you belong can never be overthrown, and the king to whom you belong will never be overthrown. For now, we only get glimpses of this city by faith, but God will keep all of his promises, beloved. And one day, we will see the brightness and the brilliance and the festivity and the glory of the new Jerusalem. And we will see in that day that God is faithful. He is truly faithful. And now, he leaves us on this earth and says, I want you just to trust me. I want you to learn to trust me. I'm telling you that your life is about this city and your life is characterized by this city. Believe me by faith. Live like this by faith and one day you will see that everything that I said was true. Beloved, I've said it to you before but I want to keep saying it again and again and again. Living by faith is not about feelings. Living by faith is not about a force. The charismatics, some of us at the men's retreat this week were talking about this, how the charismatics feel that faith is a force, and if you'll just speak things into existence, things will come about. That is a lie. That is not faith. Faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. And we trust in the faithfulness of God by believing in the words of God. When God says something is true, it is true. Faith is believing in that truth. It's believing in what God says. It's believing that God will be faithful to his purposes and his promises in his time and in his way. And this text says that for every Christian, this city is a present reality, not just a future promise. Somehow, we're tasting now what we'll feast on later. Paul and Rebecca are about to be married in a couple of weeks, so I've been thinking about it like this. When you go talk to the caterer for a wedding, you usually get to sample what's going to be served at the, at the reception, right? 
And that's what life like, is like now for here, here for us now. We don't get to enjoy the full feast right now at this time, but right now, by faith, through the Holy Spirit, we get to taste what we will feast on later. And the taste is very real. It's not fake. It's not a put-on. It's not a fraud. It's very real. It's very real. So this city is a living reality for us. And so the author brings this part of his letter to a crescendo with two commands. One's a negative command, one is a positive command. One says, don't do this. The other one says, do this. So first of all, look with me at verses 25 through 27, and we'll see the negative command. See then, given everything that you've just heard, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the thing that we should not do is to take in all of the glorious and powerful teaching of the letter to the Hebrews and then harden our hearts toward God. We should not push God away at this time. We should not disbelieve in the promises and purposes of God. We should not walk away from the Lord or from his people. We should not give lip service to the Lord and pretend that we love him when in fact we don't. We should not in any way, shape, or form refuse the Lord because he's very great, but he's also very gracious. He's on our side, beloved. He's for us. He's trying to bless us. He's trying to bring us into a joy that cannot be imagined and will never be taken away. Israel did this. Israel refused the Lord. Israel pushed him away, and things did not go well for them. They were warned by the man Moses upon this earth and they were severely punished for taking God lightly and treating him disrespectfully. They actually committed adultery against God by worshiping another so-called God and they paid a high, high price for them. Now unlike them, we have been lovingly and clearly and firmly warned not by Moses on earth, but we've been, moan, we've been warned by Jesus Christ who reigns in heaven. Why, pray to God we will hear the word of God and take this seriously. Moses was a great man of God, beloved. Among the greatest ever to walk this earth, probably top five, maybe even top three of men that God has used on this earth. He, as far as human beings go, he was great. But hear this, Jesus Christ created Moses. He's not just greater than Moses as a man, he is infinitely greater than Moses. And if people paid a high price for rejecting a man, how much higher of a price will we pray, pay for rejecting God? And so the author is pleading with us, beloved, don't push God away. Don't do it. Don't do it. Open your hearts and embrace him. Open your hearts and receive everything that he has done for you. Open your hearts and let him do his work inside of you because he's good and he's got good plans for you. So in Moses' day, we've already seen a little bit at Mount Sinai, the Lord shook the earth. And again, just to be super clear, I don't take this as a metaphor. I think if you were there, you would have felt like you were experiencing an earthquake. But it was the voice of God. It was not an earthquake. It was a powerful experience. It was a serious experience. In our day, we are living under a promise that is certainly going to come to pass. 
God is going to shake this entire planet. And he's going to do it to such a degree that it's going to destroy everything on the planet, perhaps the planet itself. Life as we know it is going to come to an end because God is going to bring it to an end. God is going to vaporize life as we know it by his judgment. This is something that he has warned us about, and it's going to happen. When you read the Old Testament and take it seriously, you see that centuries and centuries and centuries before Christ, it was prophesied that Jesus would come to this earth, and there were many specific prophecies made, and everything that God said came true. It all came true, and we know that now because we have the advantage of hindsight, We can see the prophecies, we can see the fulfillments. And so we need to look at this pattern, beloved, and believe that what the Father has said is going to happen in the future is certainly going to happen. He is going to shake this world to the core. He's going to shake this world until it is no more. And so for our part, I think the implication is this. If you don't believe in him, first of all, I call upon you to repent and turn your heart to Jesus Christ. He is incredibly gracious, but there is a season of his grace. And when that season comes to an end, you will have no more chance to enter into grace. Today is the day of salvation, says the Lord. So look to Christ, believe in him, and you will be saved. For those of us who already do believe, the implication, I think, is this. Why would we put our hope in things that God has intended and promised to destroy? Why would we do that? We do it because we're broken and unfocused, but why would we do that as God gives us sight? Why would we put our hope in politics and spend so much of our energy fighting for a kingdom that's going to be destroyed? Why would we put so much of our hope in careers and finances and possessions when all of these things are meaningless and aren't going to survive the second coming of Jesus Christ? Why would we put our hope in our families in such a way as to invest our lives and and make an idol of our families when the family is one day going to fade away and the church will remain forever and ever and ever? Why would we seek to indulge in earthly pleasures which leave us longing for more, which never satisfy, and which always create more and more problems between us and God and between us and other people? Why would we do these things? Beloved, everything I just mentioned has its place in life. It has its proper place, but the point is that God must have the unrivaled first place in our life. Do not refuse him who is speaking to you. We must learn to joyfully tremble before Jesus as Moses trembled before God so that we will live for him alone and then enjoy other things as he allows, give ourselves to other things as he allows. But even as we're enjoying things that Christ allows, we need to remember one day this will be shaken, one day this will be taken. The only thing that's going to survive is the kingdom of God in Christ. So do not refuse him who is speaking, but instead do this. Please look at verses 28 through 29. This is the second command, the positive command. Therefore, given all of that, let us turn our hearts toward God. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, since all God has done for us in Christ is real and true, we should be the most grateful people on the planet. Christian people should be the humblest people and the most grateful people on this planet. Amen? When you realize 
what God has done for you in Christ, as you go layer upon layer, down and down, and you go wide and far and deep and high, and you see what God has done for you in Christ, you should be grateful. You should be thankful. You should be humbled. Yesterday, I received the news that my Uncle Ralph had died. He was an older man. He had a knee surgery, and he didn't make it through the surgery. He was my father's last surviving brother, and since my father died when I was 11 years old, Uncle Ralph was sort of my last connection to my father, at least in my father's generation. And so I've been feeling the pain of, of hearing the news of his death. I learned it just as we were leaving the men's retreat yesterday. had two and a half hours to reflect on it all the way back down home. My uncle is dead, and he will not be coming back ever and I feel the sense of loss. I feel the same sense of pain that I felt 35 years ago when my father died, and that I felt 19 years ago when my mother died, and that I did 15 years ago when my stepfather died. I feel the sense of loss, and I'm not going to stop letting my heart feel that because it's part of the, of the uh, horror of death. Death is not a good thing. And I don't want to hide from that because that's going to become a backdrop by which I see the glory of Christ. And I'm already seeing that. I feel this strange and glorious joy in me. And I really do. This isn't stuff for a sermon. This isn't just stuff to say at church. I mean this. I feel a glorious joy inside of my heart because I know that my hope is secure in a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a king that cannot be overtaken and will never die. My king will never die die. My father died. My mother died. My stepmother died. My brother Ralph died about seven years ago. My uncle Ralph just died. Others will die. My king will never die. And I feel the glorious joy. I feel the anchor from my soul to his soul that he will never be shaken and he will never die. Faith endures as long as the object of your faith endures. Hope endures as long as the object of your hope endures. When you put your hope in something that fades away, guess what? Your hope fades away. But when you put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, who will never die, your hope and your faith will never die. Your hope and your faith will never fade away. And so we ought to be profoundly grateful for this. Even in the midst of a significant death in my life, I feel so grateful to Jesus Christ because he is a a king that cannot be overtaken and he leads a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The outward expression of this gratefulness, at least toward God, can be summarized in a couple of words. You see them in your text there. The words are acceptable worship. We, a grateful heart offers acceptable worship to the God who forgives. A thankful spirit praises the God who provides all things so generously. An appreciative soul freely and frequently boasts in God who keeps all of his promises all the way to the end. Even in the death of my beloved uncle, I could not help to say to my family, I know this is painful, but trust in Jesus Christ. He can never die. He can never die. A thankful heart is a worshipful heart even in difficult circumstances. Beloved, this is the impulse of a heart that's grateful to Jesus Christ. It expresses praise in all seasons of life even when it's very hard. And it's characterized by a couple of other things as well. A soul who offers acceptable worship to God has a sense of reverence and awe in God. This week at the men's retreat, we spent some time encouraging one another and helping each other see the glory of God. The theme of the retreat was worship, and and the content of worship is always the glory of God. 
And so together we meditated through the scripture and through creation. We meditated on the magnitude and power and wisdom of God in the universe. We meditated on the artistry of God and some things that he has created. We meditated on his scientific mind, his brilliant mind. We saw something of his profound love for his people and his affection toward his people. We saw something of his merciful heart toward the poor, toward the refugee, toward the outcast, toward the widow, toward the orphan. We saw and we saw and we savored the glory of God in these things together over three sessions and we offered appropriate praise to him from time to time. And beloved, I can tell you honestly that after spending these hours together meditating on the glory of God, my heart still feels like it's glowing with reverence and awe toward Jesus. At one point, we put a coffee cup right in the middle of the table and said, let's think about it. How do we see the glory of God in this coffee cup? And it was, it was inspiring to me to see how much we saw in a simple coffee cup, not of the cup, but of the glory of God. And I just feel in awe. I feel like everything that I look at, I just see glory, 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 glory manifested of God. And it makes my heart feel reverence toward him. It makes my heart feel in awe of him. The psalmist was not lying or exaggerating in Psalm 145.3 when he said, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And a great, great God like him deserves reverence and awe. And so I don't know how our hearts can hear about the glory of Jesus in Hebrews 1 through 6 and how we can hear about the finished work of Jesus in Hebrews 7 through 10 and how we can hear the call to faith in Jesus in Hebrews 11 through 12 and then do anything other than worship him with reverence and awe. Now, we don't always worship him as we should because we're sinful and our hearts are still hard in part. But praise be to God, the Lord has promised us that he will not stop working on our hearts until the job is done. Isn't that good news? My sense of worship toward God is not mainly about my heart toward him, but it's about his heart toward me. And he has promised that he is going to give me a heart that is always glowing with the awe and reverence that I need to have in him. And one day, I, along with all of you, will ceaselessly worship our Father. Why? the closing line of this third movement of Hebrews, for our God is a consuming fire. I see this sentence meaning two things. One is that God is holy and he should be taken seriously. He is not to be played with. He is completely other than us. He is powerful beyond compare and he is not to be played with. He cannot be deceived. He cannot be destroyed. He is not to be taken lightly. So in one sense, when you hear our God is a consuming fire, you should feel a sense of of awe and trembling and trembling. But this verse, this word, this line also means that God is gracious God will use his fire in our lives to consume all the dross out of our lives. He's going to use the fire of his heart in our lives to take from us everything that interrupts our worship of him. And one day, through the fire of God at work in our lives, we will have eyes to see his glory with such clarity and intensity that we can't stop worshiping him all the time. The reason heaven will be packed filled with worship is because in heaven all sin will be removed and you'll see the glory of God without any interruptions at all. And when you see how glorious God is, oh, beloved, beloved, you will worship him forever and ever. I I was just thinking of a couple metaphors of this. Remember Moses when he was in the desert and he saw that bush that was being burned with fire but never consumed? 
I think that that's a picture of what God wants to do in us. He wants to put his fire upon us so that it burns bright, but it won't actually consume us. It actually gives us life. He gets the junk out so that the flame can flow through us. And then I was thinking of Isaiah when he came into the presence of God and upon seeing the holiness of God, he just felt terrified because he knew that he was not holy and so he fell to his face. But God took flaming coals from his altar and he put them on Isaiah's lips and he cleansed Isaiah. So there's a sense in which the consuming fire of God comes to confront us, but also the consuming fire of God comes to prepare us. It comes to heal us. It comes to change us. It comes to transform us. And beloved, I just want to say to you that the destiny of everybody who is in Christ is to be a ceaseless worshiper of Christ. The day is coming when you will have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to praise your Father forever and ever without ceasing, without interruption. This is the crescendo with which the author of Hebrews chooses to end the third major movement of his message. See the glory of God's face and run your race. Oh, run your race. Fix your eyes on Jesus' face and run your race. Oh, run your race. Receive his blood, receive his grace and run your race. Oh, run your race. Know him, grow in him, go with him by faith together. Cling to him, trust in him, hope in him. Put all your faith in him and you will find out that God is faithful all the way to the end. That's the crescendo. Let's pray. Our Father, no matter what we think or feel about the message of Hebrews and the truth of your promises, the fact of the matter is that you are a faithful God. The fact of the matter is that you have brought us to yourself and made us to be your children in Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is that we stand, those of us who believe, we stand with the firstborn of heaven The fact of the matter is that somehow or other the city, the new Jerusalem belongs to us. This is just a fact of our life and one day we will see with our eyes what our hearts now believe by faith. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would come and be a consuming fire in us. I pray that you would come and confront us and cause us to lay aside the weights and the sins that are holding us down and holding us back. I pray that you would cleanse us of all the things that are not pleasing to you so that we would have eyes to see you and hearts to love you and mouths that long to praise you and proclaim your glory into this world. Father, I thank you so much for how you have used Hebrews 1 through 12 in our lives so far. And I pray in your mighty name that you would use it again all the more. Take this word, Lord, now that it's been preached. Take this word and use it powerfully in our lives for the glory of your name and the upbuilding of your church and the joy of our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.